0: Chapter 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The first 12 or 15 years of the life of the church following the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, the church stayed in Jerusalem, primarily. The church was a Jewish outfit. The church was thoroughgoing Jewish in every way. In the sense that the scriptures of the Hebrew people became the scriptures of the church. The promised Messiah had come and had inaugurated His kingdom. And so they believed in Him, swore allegiance to Him, and followed Him. He was now risen at the right hand of the Father, but He was governing His church through elders, through men by his own appointment. And he had told the church to stay in Jerusalem. And he said, you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem. Then in Judea, which is the surrounding country, Samaria, the neighboring country, and then to the uttermost part of the earth. As the church congregated in Jerusalem, they met in synagogues. That's what they were called. The church is a thoroughgoing Jewish outfit. In fact, rightly understood, the church is the true Israel. It is the Israel of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of Moses and David, and then, of course, fully and finally of Jesus Christ himself. And now these disciples, these believers, many of them Galilean, many of them Judean, began together. And there was a phenomenon that happened. There was the preaching of the gospel and the teaching and the breaking of bread and fellowship and prayer as they stayed together and as they bore witness to this carpenter of Nazareth that had recently been crucified and raised from the dead and they had seen ascend into heaven. He was in fact their Messiah, their Savior, their Lord their master and their king. And they bore witness to everyone around them, all of their Hebrew neighbors and friends and relatives. A couple of things happened that was kind of interesting. One little verse in the book of Acts tells us that a great number of the priests believed in Jesus. Isn't that remarkable? It was the priest in the Old Testament, the Levites, that had been given no portion in the land whatever when Joshua went in to conquer. But God had said to the priest over and over, the Lord will be your portion. I will be your portion. And that found its fulfillment right there in Jerusalem where Jesus Christ himself became the portion of the priest. And a large number of Levites joined with the believers. And the church grew. But one of the things the church endured was suffering. Persecution never stopped. The same Sanhedrin that had condemned Jesus to crucifixion were the same men that sat in judgment upon Peter and John and the other disciples as those early years went by. Casting them into prison. By 44 AD, James, the brother of John, had been slaughtered as a martyr. Even just before that, there was another martyr that had been Uh, uh, ...set up for stoning after the Jewish method of execution, Stephen. And following Stephen, there was an intense persecution, the Bible tells us in in Acts chapter 8. And the believers, many of them, scattered throughout the Roman Empire. They began to move to other places... Now, there were already believers in some of these other places because of the natural migrations. But you remember on the day of Pentecost itself, a large number of people were there. Devout Jews on pilgrimage were there to celebrate the festivals. And when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, people heard the gospel of Jesus Christ in their own languages. And then they had come from all parts. And they're named in the book in 2nd chapter of Acts, The actual countries are named and they extend all across that area of the known world. So there were Christians, believers in Jerusalem, and then many who had been scattered out. I mentioned that the Lord was ruling and governing and leading and protecting and guarding his church through elders. The apostolic band, of course, was prominent. In those early years, they're named in chapter 1 of Acts as being there in Jerusalem. Several of them, we see some of their Acts, hence the Acts of the Apostles. Peter, very prominent among them. Of course, John, the beloved disciple, whose gospel we have just concluded our study, was there. Also, There were men who were close to the church, early disciples, strong believers, men of outstanding giftedness and relationship to the Lord that took places of leadership. Two of these were the half-brothers of Jesus, James the Just and Jude, or Judas, they just began to shorten his name up because they didn't want any confusion with the other Judas. Jude. And then... There was another man quite prominent in those early years, a man by the name of Barnabas. Barnabas. Now, each of these men wrote a letter or more to the early church. And they're found at the very end of our New Testament. If you believe, as I do, that Barnabas wrote Hebrews, then from Hebrews through Jude, that is James, Peter, John and Jude, all elders and prominent apostles in the early church in Jerusalem, each wrote a one letter or more. John wrote three. To encourage, to admonish, to exhort, to keep the Christians in the faith. The great pressure from the persecution and from the Sanhedrin and from the religious establishment in Jerusalem was to move people away from the faith or to compromise it in such a way that it was no longer distinctively Christian. They were all, and if you read all of those letters that I mentioned, they all have about the same import to keep the people from falling away from apostasy, to keep the people from going off into error, into heresy, Jude especially, he tells us in his little book that he was going to write a a treatise on the gospel. He was going to write of the great common salvation, but instead it was pressed upon him by the urgency of the times and the moment to write a defense of the faith, to defend those things that had been surely believed among them, and to root out and warn about the errors and the heresy. Two things vexed the church in Jerusalem. Persecution and poverty. That's right, poverty. Not only was there a general famine in the land during that era, but the people in Jerusalem were more and more finding themselves impoverished for two reasons. One is many of their wealthy people, and there weren't many, but the few wealthy people had shared so much of their wealth that they themselves were not distinctively wealthy. Barnabas was a man like this. He was a large land owner on the Isle of Cyprus, and he sold his estate and shared with the church. And also, it was the poor people, the common people that had heard Jesus gladly and had come to faith in Christ. And so, the church did not have much wealth. In fact, Peter said, silver and gold have I none. But such as I have, he said to the lame man in the temple gate, rise and walk. It's interesting to me, and I've mentioned it before, the church can't say that now. We can't say silver and gold, have I none? Do you know how wealthy the church is in the world? The Roman church, the Greek church, the Protestant churches. Do you know how much silver and gold we've accumulated? But neither are we able to say, take up thy bed and walk either, because we have lost the power of the Holy Spirit in our midst, and have become cold, indifferent, apostate, denominated, and compromised. It's this early church environment that the book of James comes to us. And James identifies himself as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't identify himself as the brother of Jesus, and even Jude does not identify himself as the brother of Jesus either. He calls himself the brother of James. Didn't need to. Everybody, everybody knew who James was. Even Josephus, the Jewish historian writing about events in the first century, mentions James the Just, the bishop, the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. And we see him in Acts 15. We see Paul meeting with him. The scripture even mentions that Jesus had a special post-resurrection appearance to James. James had known Jesus in the carpenter shop as a young man, as a lad. But now he knows him as his risen Lord and Savior. And he can think of himself as none other than a servant. By the way, the servant of the Lord is a category that is the most humble way of thinking of yourself. Paul calls himself a bond slave. The bond slave was the lowest echelon of ancient social order. The servant. On the other hand, the servant of the Lord is the highest rank in the kingdom of God. For Jesus had told his disciples, the greatest among you will be the one that serves the most. And it was the great man of Israel's history that were called the servant of the Lord. Moses, my servant. David, my servant. And it was the great promise all through the prophetic scriptures that the one who would come and be the Lord of all would be the servant We read about them in the servant songs and in the servant prophecies of the Old Testament. So when James calls himself a servant, he's saying both of those things. My highest honor is that I am a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And my most humble, grateful disposition of soul is that it is my privilege to serve. That should be, I think, the attitude of all of us. Now, he writes to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Based on what I said at the outset, can you see why he would think that way? That he would think of the church as the... Israel of God, the people of God, the true people of God, the the regathered, the redeemed, the restored, everything the Old Testament said that God was going to do for Israel, He did in Christ and in the church. He gathered them, He restored them, He put a shepherd over them. He redeemed them and rescued them. It's easy for James to stay within the proper category. We, that is the true believers in the true seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, we are the true 12 tribes of Israel. We're the true Israel. And so he addresses, obviously, Christians with this title of the 12 tribes of the diaspora, the dispersion. In other words, these are the people that have been scattered through the persecutions and other things that have moved them around the world. God had always said He was going to reach the world. He was going to do it through Israel. Israel was the light of the nations. And that's precisely in the fullness of time what the Lord did. He put the Jews, the true Jews, the Christians, the believers, and scattered them around the world. Now, they were able to join with the diaspora, of earlier generations. God's people had been scattered when the Assyrians came through in conquest in 700 B.C. They had been scattered all out of Palestine and all over the Assyrian Empire. They had been scattered again 150 years later when the Chaldeans, the Babylonians came and razed the city and tore down the the walls and Destroyed the temple and stole everything out of the temple. All the gold and all the precious things from the temple. And hauled a large number of the people off into Babylonian captivity. And even though God had brought them back. Under Ezra and Nehemiah and others. They not all returned. They stayed. And there were synagogues. In all the major cities of the Roman Empire when Christ came. Places just waiting, where the scriptures were read, where the Psalms were sung, where prayers were offered, where men and women gathered. And These are the places. These are the assemblies. That's what the word synagogue means. It means to gather together. Because the church means the called out ones, the ecclesia. Can you see? God had gathered Israel into synagogues and called out of those synagogues His people, His chosen, His elect. And this is what the circumstance was when James writes his letter. Now, the letter of James is interesting in many ways because James gets right to the point and there's a lot of literary background to this book. Many believe that James, being a, a strong preacher and pastor, had preached many sermons, and what we have here are kind of the, the, the thesis statements that he makes in his various sermons, because he brings up an enormous number of topics, and some think that we just have here a collection of the essence of the preaching, uh, portion of the preaching of James. Some believe that James wrote this as a letter. He certainly addresses it as a letter. This is part of what's called the Catholic epistles. That is, these letters that I mentioned from James all the way through to Jude are historically known as the Catholic, which means universal epistles because they weren't addressed to particular places. Like Paul said, the church at Philippi, the church at Corinth, the church at Rome, church at Ephesus, James sends it to all. John sends his letter to all, Jude the same way. These are the general epistles, the the epistles that go to the church generally. But the first thing he deals with is trials, afflictions. The word is sometimes thought of in terms of trials, that is like a test, and sometimes it's thought of as a temptation, that is an enticement. Here I think, The sense is clearly that of a test because that's what the Scriptures say. By the way, this is the exact same subject that Peter begins his epistle with. And we read it there in our call to worship. Let me remind you of that. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter was on board with the same way of thinking. Paul is too. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What can he possibly mean by count it all joy. The most prominent feature of the Christian life in the earliest days was suffering. Jesus suffered leaving us an example that we should walk in his step. Jesus Christ Himself warned His disciples that they would be persecuted, that they would be reviled, that they would be spoken evil against. They would be put out of the synagogues. He even let them know that He was going to a death as suffering, and some of them would too. In fact, all the apostolic group suffered some measure of suffering, and the whole apostolic group suffered martyrdom. I mentioned James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of Peter. He was one of the early martyrs in the church. Peter was a martyr. Paul suffered martyrdom. James himself, in 62 A.D. was martyred. In fact, he was thrown off the precipice of the temple and then clubbed to death with a fuller's club. That's how he died. So when these men, Peter, Paul, and James, and the, and the men of the early church talked to us the key word that they urge upon us is the word we find translated pretty consistently in the ESV, endurance. It's that word that's in the very end of that verse. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness has have and let steadfastness have its full effect. The word steadfastness is hupomeno. We talked a lot about it when we looked at the book of First Peter about seven years ago or eight years ago. It means, it's very simple, it, it means under, hypo or hupo. Meno means to remain. It means to remain under. And the picture is that of carrying a burden. Carrying a heavy burden for a long time. You can carry a light burden for a long time. You can carry a heavy burden for a short time. But carrying a heavy burden for a long time requires something. It requires steadfastness. Undertaking and undergoing and enduring. And that's what the Christian life calls for. It'll be interesting in this, in this passage, and we'll come back to this theme over and over, and we'll develop it, the verses, as we go through. We'll, we'll see what James has for us here. But, but what he's really trying to let us know is that here's what the Christian life is all about. It's a birth. He'll talk about that pretty soon. We'll talk about our regeneration, our new birth. But it is also an endurance. It's living out of a life. A life of faithfulness. A life of obedience. A life that comes with test after test, trial after trial. A life of fighting sin. A life of developing Christian graces. A life that is moving more and more toward more maturity. And that's what the word here means, that you may be perfect. That means mature. That's what the Christian life is. You're moving toward maturity. If you're still a squalling infant... In the kingdom of God, and you've been a Christian for 25 years, you've got some serious things to ask yourself. And I'm going to tell you right now, James is going to ask it in such a way and going to tell us about it in such a way that if your conscience is not stirred, you're just not listening to the Spirit of God. Because James is here to be very stark and let us know. He will tell us that our faith without works is dead. James was not a preacher of cheap grace. But the Christian life is moving toward that maturity and wholeness. Literally, good spiritual health. That's what that word means, the word complete. That you may be perfect and complete. That you may be mature and that you may be sound. Spiritually healthy. Having what Paul enumerates as the fruit of the Spirit. And things that they will talk about. You will be patient, tolerant, merciful, loving, generous. These are the graces of the Christian life. And if they're not there, at least in some measure, as you mature and as you grow and as you become more healthy, if they're not there, you probably aren't a believer. You probably aren't in the fold. You need to check that. And that's what James is going to help us do. He's going to be very, very pastorally strong. He's going to show us the way to walk. And he's going to do it in a delightful way. He's got one metaphor after another, one illustration after another, some some things that are delightful to consider. This is not going to be what we would think of as deep doctrine. Yet it goes to the very heart of our way of living. James, Jude, and Peter, they were all concerned with orthodoxy, that is, correct teaching. But they were even as much concerned with orthoproxy, that is, correct living, correct practice. And that's what we're going to be dealing with. Let me just say one thing. I I just can't stop here. If there was anybody anywhere in the group of people that made up the story of Christ that knew Jesus intimately and Thoroughly, it would have been his brother. And there's an indication in Scripture, a strong indication that the brothers of Jesus didn't even really believe in Jesus as the Messiah and who he said he was during his earthly ministry. That it took the cross and the resurrection to convince them that Jesus was the Christ. And isn't that where we are? What tells us more about Christ than His sacrificial, voluntary, atoning death on the cross, bearing our sins, showing His love for us by standing in our place on, in the judgment of God, receiving in His body the cup of wrath and His resurrection, His Emergence from the tomb as the risen Lord. I don't think James is any different from any of us. I think what calls us to God and calls us to the Christian life is Christ's and His death and His resurrection. And it was when he saw the risen Lord, his whole brother, the risen Lord. He believed. And I believe that's the way it is with us. When the Spirit opens your eyes of faith to see the cross, what Jesus did for you on that cross and the import of it, and when you realize that He is alive forevermore and ever lives to make intercession for you, it will make a believer out of you too, I think.